Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, we have a very special guest, as I'm joined by the one and only Marcelo Claure, CEO of SoftBank Group International and all-around fascinating business leader and entrepreneur. Born and raised in La Paz, Bolivia, Marcelo immigrated to the U.S. for college and later founded Brightstar, a company he built into a global category leader and also became the largest Hispanic-owned business in U.S. history. Most recently, Marcelo, alongside SoftBank chairman and CEO Masayoshi Son, oversees the strategic direction of SoftBank, along with a vast portfolio of operating companies and investments, including SoftBank's $5 billion Latin America fund. As a fellow Bolivian, I have been a longtime admirer of Marcelo, so this was a particularly exciting interview where we discuss Marcelo's background from entrepreneur to global business and fintech leader, challenges of building a company without much access to funding, the story behind building the SoftBank Latin America Fund, and why there's no doubt this is the golden era of entrepreneurship in the region, his take on the state of the fintech industry, and why several of their portfolio companies have a strong fintech component, the importance of backing diverse and minority entrepreneurs, and what Marcelo and the SoftBank team are doing about it, valuable entrepreneurial advice, and a lot more valuable information. Hope you enjoy this all-time favorite of mine as much as I did. Oh, Marcelo, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Welcome. How are you today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. It's hard to say no when a Bolivian reach out to another Bolivian. So here we are. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I was going to say, not only are you a, an industry leader and someone we would absolutely invite to the podcast on a normal day, but this is extra special because I'm also from Bolivia and we're from the same city and maybe even the same neighborhood. So it's a pleasure to have you here. And on that note, Marcelo, I wanted to start with the beginning, right? I wanted to start by hearing a little bit about your background and the road that took you to where you are today from Bolivia to the U.S. Since I'm getting older, so now there are more years to talk about, I'll give you a, a short version, right? So I'm from Bolivia. I went to high school in Bolivia, and then I came to the U.S. to study. Then I had a chance to go back to Bolivia and be involved in soccer early on. I was part of the management team that took Bolivia to the World Cup. That was my first job in 1994. After that, I came back to the U.S. I bought a couple of cell phone shops in Boston. Then I sold those cell phone shops. So I made a little money. I started a company called Brightstar, which uh, it was a small distribution company, distribution supply chain. And even back then, a fintech company, as I remember, we launched an iPhone for a dollar a day. So we're financing people, giving them access to a desired good for people who couldn't afford it. And they used to pay us a dollar a day. But anyway. Brightstar Group became the world's largest cell phone wireless distribution company and supply chain, insurance, et cetera. And then I sold it to SoftBank. And as part of my sale to SoftBank, I found out that they really didn't want Brightstar, but they wanted me. So I became the CEO of Sprint. And Sprint was a big change. It was from being an entrepreneur who founded a, the world's largest company in my industry, I became an intrapreneur. An intrapreneur means an entrepreneur who lands into an old, iconic, 120-year-old telco 
in the middle of the country in Kansas City. And the company was losing many billions of dollars, many millions of customers. And we put together a five-year turnaround plan. We deliver a, the best financial results in Sprint history. Then we merged with T-Mobile to create what's one of the largest mergers. It was a $200 billion merger. And now we created what I think is going to be the best 5G provider in the world. We put together a spectrum asset. We led a very contested merger approval process, which the odds were very slim at the beginning since we're going from four carriers to three in the largest market in the world. We got the deal approved. Then we got sued by the attorney general from New York. Her name is Letitia James, somebody that I remember every day. We beat her in court, and then we were able to consummate the merger. Then we did the world's largest securitization. So we're able to securitize our holdings in a new company to the tune of $26 billion in one day. Then I got invited by Massa, told me that I was a good entrepreneur and I was a good operator, but that I was a terrible investor. So he invited me to go live with him in Tokyo for 18 months, where we sat every day together from 8 o'clock in the morning till 10 p.m. And we invested to the tune of a billion dollars a week into many different companies from mainly India, China, US, and some Southeast Asia, all sort of companies that were true disruptors. After that, after I learned how to be an investor, I told Massa that I wanted to test what I've learned. And that took me to starting the Latin American Fund, the 5 billion tech growth equity Latin American Fund. In the middle of that, we had a little WeWork debacle. So apart from I do for the group, but mostly the executive chairman of WeWork. And this is another turnaround. So I'm talking to you from WeWork today. So I split my day between running WeWork, investing in Latin America, helping Massa invest in, again, a billion dollars a week in different parts of the world. And I run all the operating companies of the group, all the companies that we own. So busy days and busy weeks. Oh, fascinating and definitely a lot to unpack. You have commented in the past that one of your biggest challenges as an entrepreneur was getting funded, right? And funding was definitely something that you remember as a big challenge. Now you're actually helping fund entrepreneurs, right? Going back, why do you think it was so challenging for you when building Brightstar? Because we didn't have what we have today. There wasn't this large ecosystem of venture money to help high growth companies. There wasn't. So I was able to get Brightstar funded by utilizing traditional lending, you know, banking lending, which if you go back, but it was different because because you didn't have money, it forced you to become profitable and it forced you to have profitable growth. So therefore, anytime you have profitable growth, anytime you have a lot of assets, you're always going to have banks who are going to do asset-based, asset-backed lending. But it took me seven years to get to a billion dollars. It took me 15 years to get to 10 billion in revenue. I think the ecosystem existed back then that existed today. I think it would have taken me five years to get to 10 billion. And because back then you didn't have this, all you had were private equity and private equity are not growth investors. They are value investors. So therefore, they will give you just enough money for you to have that profitable growth. Now, in retrospect, it all worked out. We built an amazing company. But I think it could have been a lot more amazing if we would have had the type of company like SoftBank who identifies entrepreneurs 
that have the ability to take on market share that build disruptive business models and that the size of the market is large. So it was more difficult. It was more private equity combined with banks. And the venture businesses were more for startups and the checks were smaller and all that. And I think a changing moment in venture investing or in growth investing was when we arrived, when SoftBank arrived, when we were willing to write billion-dollar checks to companies that had the potential to grow. So you're clearly trying to change this for entrepreneurs all over the world, but particularly Latin America, right? Let's talk a bit about SoftBank Latin America. This is a huge, huge endeavor, big fun, the biggest by far in the region. How did the idea come about to focus specifically in, in Latin America? And what's your reflection two years in and 30 investments in? So imagine I'm here in Sydney, Tokyo, and all we do is we talk to entrepreneurs, probably eight and minutes a day. And you have the world's most aggressive, growth-oriented disruptors showing up to our headquarters in Tokyo. And it pissed me off that I did not see a single Latin American. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm mistaken. We had one. It was Chimpas, Cesar. So I don't know how showed up, but out of know, two, three, four hundred meetings, they were all Indians, they were all Americans, or they were all Chinese. And I was intrigued because then I started looking at Latin American data, and you figure out Latin America is only half of China. So, and the funding into China was $100 billion of venture a year. Latin America is two times the size of India, and the funding into India was something like $20 billion. And same thing, Latin America is two times the size of Southeast Asia. And the funding into Southeast Asia was $20 billion. So I was always intrigued. I say, is it that we just don't connect with Latin America? Is it that there are no Latin American entrepreneurs? Like, what's wrong? So then I traveled to Latin America, and I figured that the amount of venture was so small, the total venture investing the day I started in Latin America was a billion dollars. And then why China was 100? I mean, we're not 1% of China. Why India was 20 billion? We're not 120 India. We're two exercises of India. And I met these entrepreneurs who were incredible. They were good. They had the right plans. They had the right business models. They had the right tech stack, but they were lacking capital. And then when you're lacking capital, what happens is you trim your ambition. You want to make sure that you're not going to run out of capital and you force yourself to get to profitability faster, or you just the saddest thing is you trim your ambition. So I said, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity because I look at Latin America like you were like five years behind China from a tech innovation. And I remember going back to Massa and I said, there's something really cool for us to do here. It's like, Massa, imagine if you could go back five years in time in China, knowing everything that we know. I mean, we would be just be great. I said, that's my theory. I said, so we should start in Latin America and we should start, and I was so, I was so, I said, Massa, we're going to start a $1 billion fund. And then Massa looked at me and he said, why do you think so small? I said, what do you mean? He says, Latin America is 7% of the world's GDP. You should be asking for at least seven, not one. I said, that's good. I said, so why don't we settle on five? He says, great. So we started our $5 billion Latin American fund, and we put together a team. It's funny when you say, hey, I'm thinking of starting a fund. Because I met these two guys who were starting a fund and they came to pitch and they said, look, we want to start a $300 million fund. I said, I have a better idea. Why don't you just work for us and we'll make it a $5 billion fund. 
And why don't you guys come run it? And I was very lucky to have a guy by the name of Pablo Pasoni, who's a really, really good investor. I recruited a couple of people from the vision firm from some of other funds. And I hired a guy, Andre Maciel, who was the youngest partner of uh, JP Morgan in Brazil. And in a week with the fund, and two weeks later, we already had started to invest. Uh, and we're in the middle of the action fighting another Bolivian, who's Martin Escovari from GA. So it's a pleasure to fight Bolivians. So we started, and then I am so excited by everything that we've done. I think we've invested over $2.5 billion, 30 companies. We have a lot more dry powder, and I could not be more pleased with the growth of our entrepreneurs, with the growth of the company we have invested, and what I think those companies will eventually become. So clearly, fintech is leading the way in this entrepreneurial wave of Latin America, right? Just looking at your portfolio, I see seven pure fintech plays out of your 30 investments, and at least five more are within the financial sphere or are becoming fintechs. Happy, for example, they, they didn't start as a fintech, but now they have a very strong fintech arm, right? So let's talk about fintech and how do you envision specifically the fintech industry in Latin America evolving over the following years? Because I know you do pay a lot of attention to the industry. Yeah. So we are huge believers in fintech because we've lived fintech. If you look at one of the most successful investments that we've done at SoftBank has been Alibaba, right? And Alibaba eventually turned into Alipay or Ant Financials. And it showed how you can start being a marketplace and eventually make it easy for your customers to transact and therefore be able to evolve and eventually become a very powerful fintech, in this case, Ant Financial, who at one point in time was doing more transactions than the entire Chinese banking system, right? So we always understand that behind any of these stock companies that we're investing, there is a fintech opportunity, right? Rappi wasn't founded to be a payments company, right? Rappi was founded in order to solve like Uber, like Uber Eats, right? In order for people to be able to connect between restaurants and consumers, and do it in an efficient way or between supermarkets and consumers. And then what happens is this company starts transacting billions and billions of dollars, and then you are forced to innovate in Latin America due to the slowness, the complacency, and the cockiness of your traditional banks. So in many cases, you innovate, you become a fintech out of necessity, and then you realize that, hey, why not? Fintech and these companies reminds me a lot of a personal story. You know, when I was doing Brightstar and I was the largest distributor in the world, in order for me to be very efficient, I needed to run an amazing supply chain. And then I figured out that my supply chain was better than that of my customers. And I built a whole new business where my supply chain business was bigger than my core business, just running supply chain for everybody else. And I think a lot of that happens, right? You look at Kabak. Kabak is a used car. AI-enabled sales company, right? They buy used cars, they utilize technology in order to price it, and they make it easy for a customer to buy it. Well, guess what? The number one impediment for them to sell more cars is the lack of access to credit. And if you go to a bank and you try to get a car loan, it's as bad as giving birth. I mean, it's painful. So therefore, you get an entrepreneur that says, look, this is not that hard, right? We can provide credit. And by the way, if the consumer doesn't pay, you know what, we buy the, we get the car back and we resell the car. That's our business. 
So therefore, you see Kabak thinking, hey, by the way, I might become a, a, a fintech. I might start financing cars. And by the way, if I finance 50% of the cars that I sell, I suddenly become a very large lending institution. So that happens all over the place. I see it in Inter. I see it in Walla. I see it in Lemonade. I see it in Creditas. I see it in Ant. I see it in Sofa in the US. I see it in a lot of our companies. Now, going back to Latin America, Latin America is great, right? Because the funding to South American or Latin American-based fintech, it's increasing. And what I love about what I created in Latin America is we're there, but now everybody else is there now. So now for fintech companies, as a Latin American, I'm super proud. There's a lot of money finally to help Latin American companies. I don't like so much that we have more competition, but it's fine. So then now where is a lot of the money that's going into Latin America? It's all going into payment and lending platforms into Latin America. And the reason why is because lending is totally broken in Latin America. Right, I'll give you an example of Confio in Mexico. If you're an SME and you want to get a loan from a bank, I mean, God bless you. You need audited financial statements. You got to go speak to your credit officer. They put you through that terrible bureaucracy of the Mexican banking system. Now, why should a Mexican bank change when they're the most profitable banks in the world? They shouldn't, right? So then suddenly you have Confio who has the ability because of the electronic invoicing system of Mexico, they have the ability to look at a loan and they have a principle called the 10-1-0 principle. 10 minutes to approve a deal, one day to disperse, and zero credit officers involved. Just imagine that for a second. And then, or you go to that nasty bank that you have to wait three hours in line, talk to a cocky credit officer, wait for three months, and they might give you a loan or not. So therefore, I mean, Latin America is ripe for disruption because the banking system is so broken in every piece, right? Then something really magical happened in Latin America during COVID, right? And that is Latin America is still one of the populations that had the largest amount of unbanked, that people basically grab their money in cash, lift the mattress, put the cash in there, and all that. Well, guess what? In COVID, you couldn't transact in cash, right? Because everything went uh, touchless and faceless. So therefore, there was an enormous reduction, 25% reduction of the unbanked population in Latin America. And those people, they didn't go to a branch to open a bank account. They basically went straight to a digital bank. They went to New Bank in Brazil, or they went to Banco Inter. So now, these are people that are digital first financial inclusion people. And guess what? Those people, hey, they start by putting their money there, then they figure out how to do their payments there. Then they'll figure out how to do investment. So I think we are uh, living a really, really good time for fintech in Latin America. The bad thing, challenges will always exist. There's still a lack of digital identity. There's lack of infrastructure. And they have a fragmented, not connected banking industry. So, But overall, I think great things are about to happen in Latin America. And I think the acceleration of financial inclusion of fintech is just going to get more exciting in Latin America. Yeah, it was certainly incredible. I had, for example, one of your portfolio companies had Pierpaolo Barbieri from Voila. And I had him in May once and then in January on the podcast. And then the growth was just incredible throughout the pandemic, right? I think over 50% of their workforce is now people that were hired during COVID remotely. And the transactions have gone up as well. So talking about SoftBank Latam going forward, 
you have a big war chest, of course, but what would be an ideal scenario for you down the line? Would it be just to invest it all and, and keep adding more funds or do you want to you know, obviously go beyond that? So I think we have the ability, few things excite me more than what we're doing in Latin America because we have the ability to transform a continent that's broken. A continent where in our DNA of SoftBank, we invest or investment philosophy is very simple. We invest in great entrepreneurs that are disrupting the way we work, the way we live, and the way we play. And Latin America is really broken, so you can disrupt more. It's hard to disrupt in the US, right? Because it's half broken. But Latin America is almost all broken. We're living at a time where I think in the next five years, we're going to reinvent pretty much every single vertical segment. We're going to reinvent. So there has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur, right? So I look at Latin America and I see there's so many things that we're going to be able to reinvent, right? Transportations need a lot of help. That's why we have companies. We have invested in a company in Brazil called Logi, and they're flying. Why? Because Correos or their post office is just broken. I mean, it's the same staff gets lost. There's no tracking and all that. So any company can do that, right? So therefore, you have the emergence of all these alternate transportation companies, Uber, Didi, Rappi, et cetera, that are basically changing. Cars, right? I mean, imagine selling a car in Mexico. You put in a classified and you're scared that whoever's going to come look at the car, you know, they might rob you. So therefore, now suddenly you can just go to Kabat, you go online. You take a few pictures of your car, they give you a quote, and somebody comes and picks up your car and your money's in the bank the following day. It's like a miracle in compared to today, you list your classified, 20, 30 people will call you, you have no idea who's coming to your house. Every time you show the car, you're at risk. So then you don't want them to come to your house because you don't want to know where they live. So therefore you say, I'm going to meet you somewhere. Well, when you say, I'm going to meet you somewhere, you might get kidnapped. So it's so broken that suddenly a bag pops up. And then he says, wow, look what it can happen. E-commerce, the same thing. There's so much potential in which Mercado Libre is doing. And then the different vertical e-commerce players like Madera Madera and others. Real estate. Oh my God, you know, there's no MLS. At least here you can look at a house and look at the history of the house. Hey, got sold at $200,000, now at $250,000. Over there, there's zero MLS, there's zero comparative. So when you list your house, you list it to 20 different brokers. I see who's going to bring you the best offer. Well, guess what? There are companies over there, again, with the power of fintech that says, you list your house, I'm going to buy it for you, I give you the cash immediately, and I'm going to go sell it, and I'm going to create the same database. And I can go on and on and on of all the different verticals that are going to be reinvented in Latin America. So I think there has never been a better time for you to be an entrepreneur. There had never been a continent that is so broken and has been so underinvested. And there had never been as much capital to help this business in Latin America. So, you know, I could not be more excited about making sure that SoftBank gets its own little fair share, Latin America gets its own little fair share of our own ecosystem. I mean, we plan to invest at SoftBank $50 billion a year. The minimum that we can do is invest two, three, four billion dollars a year in Latin America. Yeah, definitely the golden era of entrepreneurship in Latin America right now. Marcelo, I wanted to ask you about a topic that I know is close to your heart, and that is diversity, both from entrepreneurs as well as investors, right? And on that front, in the last year, you launched the Opportunity Fund. 
So we'd love to hear about that and where the idea come from and how has it been so far? Yeah. So I'm an action-driven person, right? So I'm out there watching TV, the whole George Floyd movement, and people are going nuts, and there's protest, and it's just, it's just ugly. And then I figure out, like, how can I help, right? And I was reading in social media, and you have all these corporate big CEOs saying, you know, hey, I stand with the black community. And I'm like, but standing means what? It means nothing. It's just a cheap social media post saying, hey, I stand with you. And I say, we should be doing more, right? We should use the power that we have. I mean, some people have money. Some people have access to capital. Some people have time so they can go join protests. But each one of us has something to do. And one of the things that we are, we're the largest tech investor in the world. We're one of the largest money managers in the world. So we have access to capital. And then I went back and I remember growing Bright Star. God, it was hard to get money if you were Latino. Super hard. I mean, because the venture capital community, it is wired that if you have a kid from Stanford, from Yale, from Harvard, from Wharton, and if the kid is white and has a great business plan, you're going to trust that a lot more than if you have a black kid who sits on the other side of the table who didn't go to an Ivy League school and has a business plan, same business plan, same potential, you're automatically going to believe in the white guy from an Ivy League college education. That's just the way we're wired, even as an investor, so even myself, right? And I said, so, and that was unfair when I was raising money. So I figured one of the things that we had to do was let's make capital that is only available for entrepreneurs of color. So I talked to Massa and gave my idea, 7 p.m. on a day, and he said, let's do it. And then the following morning, we were on CNBC announcing the launch of a $100 million opportunity fund to do two things. One is to provide access to capital to entrepreneurs of color. But two, more importantly, to entice others to stop just standing with the black community and doing something about it. And it worked. You know, Goldman launched a fund. Apple is now launching a fund. PayPal is launching a fund. So everybody's launching a fund. So I love the same thing that we did in Latin America, right? We went and we said, we're doing a $5 billion tech fund. At the beginning, people said, oh, my God, you're crazy. I said, no. And now it's a pleasure and a pain. Every good deal, it's a pleasure that the Latin American entrepreneurs have more choices. It's a pain that there's competition. But if I'm an entrepreneur, I love what SoftBank did. And we're doing the exact same thing in the Black and Hispanic community in the U.S. We started, everybody followed. Now they have choices. Now, whenever now we're investing into Black-owned or Latino-owned businesses, there's a lot of competition. And it's good, healthy competition. And there's nothing better for an entrepreneur. I didn't have that. And when I was raising money, I had one choice. And they set the terms. And they told me, money, I should take it at these terms. I love that great companies backed by Latinos and Blacks today have choices. We win because I think we relate to them and they relate to me. I was in their shoes 15 years ago, but it's nice that they got more choices. And I'm sure that's going to have some overlap with the Miami Fund, right? We recently actually had Mayor Suarez on the podcast not long ago, and it was immediately after your announcement of the also $100 million Miami fund. You know, Miami being a capital of a lot of Latinos in the U.S., right? I imagine there's going to be some overlap. So I think, you know, Miami needed a little push. You know, Miami has everything that you need. Talent in the post-pandemic world, everybody can move anywhere. You no longer have to live in headquarters in Silicon Valley. Miami is going to have the capital now. We're there. GA moves their people there. And some of the other funds are moving. So now there's a lot more capital. 
And there's no better location and quality of living than Miami. So I think Miami has everything that it takes to become an important tech hub. I don't believe that Miami will be the only one. I think Austin, Atlanta, Nashville, there's other places. But what is happening is we're in the middle of living a decentralization of the tech hubs or tech funds, as I would call them. Before it was Silicon Valley had a 95% market share. Maybe there was a few funds in New York. I look after this, you know, hey, Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, they're always going to be very important, but there will be four or five other cities who will also play for the same role that Silicon Valley has played. And it's amazing that all it takes is a friendly mayor who endorses tech, endorses new movements of crypto and others, and says, hey, come on over, we're open for business. And hey, we're living in San Francisco and you see how bad the politicians treat you there. And I would say how a little ungrateful they are because the tech community contributed a lot to the growth of San Francisco and in that entire part of the country. So it's amazing, you know, and I think Miami will be a good place, it'll be a good tech hub, and SOCOM will fully support Miami. Exciting times, exciting times. So Marcelo, you not only have been an investor, but also, of course, uh, you started as an entrepreneur. We do have quite a few either aspiring founders or current entrepreneurs that tune in to the show, I think it would be very valuable for you to share some of reflections and advice for entrepreneurs who are much earlier in their journey. Yeah. You know, I get asked this question a lot, and I try not to give a traditional answer that we all do, right? What I'll say is you're lucky that you're living in a moment where everything that you need to be successful is there. All the recipes, all the ingredients for that recipe exist there today. One is, like I said before, every single business, traditional business, traditional industry, vertical segment is going to be disrupted. And there's a tremendous amount of hunger for disruption. There's a lot of capital. So if you have a good idea, even if it's at the early stages, there's money in every single part of the chain, right? From seed to series A to B, C, whatever. So there's a lot of capital that it hasn't existed before. The cost of capital is incredibly cheap today, which that wasn't the case before. So I just find that there had never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. Make sure that you think big. We love to fund people that can think big, that can think outside the region, that can think of how and more important, I can think of how they're going to change the way something big happens, the way we work, the way we live, the way we play. Now, if you're one of those, you're going to find that there has never been a better opportunity in the history of the world for you to be successful. And this has never happened before. You know, in the past, I look at the wave of disruption that we've had in the last two years because of COVID and what we're going to have the next five years, it is bigger than the last 100 years. In the past, you had entrepreneurs who were trying to change things the way the world worked, and they found so much resistance. Today is the opposite. So I don't think there has ever been a better opportunity to be an entrepreneur in any industry, in any part of the world. Marcelo, before we go, because we are running out of time, we always love to ask our guests about a little bit about their hobbies, right? A little bit outside of their work life. And I know you do have quite a few hobbies. You're a, you're a cyclist. You're an avid football or, or soccer fanatic. Maybe you could share um, what do you enjoy the most outside of your professional side? 
so a few things. One is I love football because it is the only sport in the world where the gap is not that big, right? In basketball, if you are a basketball player, the NBA will kill, destroy, crush any other league or any other team in the world. Nobody else has a chance. The same happens in hockey. You know, hockey is just three or four countries. Football is the only sport in the world where you can have a small country like Uruguay with four or five million people beat a country with a billion people, right? So this is what I like. Soccer, and also that for emerging countries, all you need is a little soccer ball and 22 people can run. So the entry cost is extremely low, right? So that's why I love it. And, and I'm learning, I own a team in each of the three leagues, in the European League in Spain, in the US, in MLS, and Bolivia, and I'm learning the three leagues. And I believe that soccer is at the earliest, earliest, earliest stage of utilizing tech. I mean, the way we select the players is like crazy. I mean, you look at a video, you send somebody to go watch a game and you use 1% data. And I believe that in the future, we should use 99% data and we should be able to know exactly how that player will, we should put AI to determine how that player will fit into our team, into the league, into a match. And the professional football scouters are going to be replaced by AI engineers we're going to be able to build the best teams. And I want to be part of that disruption because I'm applying my life learning to a sport that I love. So that's one. Now, from a hobby perspective, I like to push myself every year, right? Two years ago, I ran the New York Marathon, which for a guy like me that weighs 300 pounds and is six foot seven, it's an enormous effort. But that taught me that it's like any other business. If you have the right plan, because I had a training plan, if you work hard, because I work my butt off, and if you are disciplined, you're going to be able to accomplish things that are pretty much impossible for others. So every year I do something. This year I did a bike in Grand Fondo where I went up something like 10,000 feet, which was a lot for me. And then, you know, I want to perfect my powder skiing this year. So every year I choose something that at the beginning of the year would find impossible. And then I put a lot of hard work. I put a plan and I execute and then I'm able to accomplish my goals. So there's nothing more satisfying than achieving a goal that at the beginning, you almost see insurmountable. Fascinating stuff. Well, Marcelo, can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for continuing to inspire people from Latin America and all over the world. And now you're a friend of Wharton and a friend of the show. So, you know, you're always invited to come back and, and stop by campus as well. Thank you. And it's, it's great what you're doing. I'm glad to see that. I was looking at the list of people and I see that most of our portfolio companies that you are giving him the exposure and helping them grow. So thank you and good luck. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our Fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 